1: Welcome back to Administrative Static, and I'm here with Mark and Janine, and you know we're right before the first Monday in October, and so the Supreme Court is coming back, and um, I was I was looking at an article by uh, Does it have any cases yet? John? Yeah, it does. So Jim, Jimmy <laughs> Hoover in the National Journal had a, a case, the Supreme Court's biggest matchup, DOJ versus the Fifth Circuit, and coincidentally, a lot of those cases that they're looking at. Um, our cases we're looking at and so the court is coming up it has not taken many cases it's i think it's got like 20 22 cases or something like this um which which is kind of ridiculous um i I guess it's all it's all the filings of missouri v biden has slowed them down (laughs) but but so but i i think that uh these cases uh many of them are ones that we're watching and i and um the the pitch of this article is that the fifth has been getting reversed a lot, and Ted Olson used to do a roundup with the Supreme Court every year, and he'd bring up the Ninth Circuit and how it was 12-0 and 0 or 9-0. and 0. They'd just take or, cases. Or 0-9. Yeah, yeah, like 0-9. That's what I mean. Yeah. L- losses to wins, exactly. So yeah. they would always lose, and he's saying, well, they've, they've been reversed a lot. And I, it's It's always a partial bag, I think. But in any event, let's talk about some of those cases, Mark, because we- well, I was going to say
0: the Fifth we got Cochrane right, right last Exactly, conference. we it were just talking about. So. It
1: certainly did. It was a, it was certainly affirmed on that. And I, I thought I was laughing a little because I was thinking, I don't know. I think the Fifth Circuit's pretty happy with their affer- a- affirmation rates. Um, Our track record's good anyway. Yeah,
2: certainly. And so,
1: <laughs> well, why don't we go through, through a couple of these? Well, CFPB versus Community Financial Services Association, Association of America, I think that's pretty- uh, close to our hearts, right? What's going on there, Mark?
0: Yeah, this is the same case, the same issue that we had in the Crystal Maroney v. CFPB case, which is is the CFPB's manner of of funding constitutional? And so, as you can imagine, that goes right to the jugular of, of the agency. If it turns out that it's being funded in an unconstitutional manner, it is, uh, then that's a real problem for the agency, and and it would undermine a lot of what they're doing now. The good news is from from a remedy perspective there are 19 different statutes that the CFPB enforces 18 of those 19 were being enforced by other agencies before the CFPB ever existed. So if even if the CFPB goes away it's not like you're just knocking out, you know, 19 different banks statutes. are running wild. No, of course not. Of course not. And the, the government would, would like for you to believe that that it would be some sort of shock to the system if if uh, although I guess they said that about another case. But anyway, they want you to believe that it would be some dire problem if the CFPB uh, went away. The truth is that what all the all the Supreme Court would need to do is say this ma- method of funding is unconstitutional. Any orders coming out of the agency until that's fixed are not going to be enforced. And Congress can now do with that information what it wishes to do. And then Congress would presumably come back and maybe it would clip the wings of the agency, but certainly it would have to put it through a constitutional method of funding rather than this weird sui generis method of funding through a per- percentage of the fed receipts and so forth that insulates cfpb from congress and from the votes for congress every two years which is the whole point of keeping you know purse strings uh, under the control of the people
1: and there is this problem the cfpb was designed this is this was like high watermark of progressivism which is kind of in conflict with the constitution because their theory is is that all of these votes allow the banks to get away with murder because no one wants to go against the big banks. Well, I've heard congressmen, they seem to want to go against the big banks on many occasions. So I don't think, the, but, but we should note that they also gave the head of the CFPB enormous powers and, and said he couldn't be removed except for cause by the, by the president. So they, that has already been struck down. Um, And there has not been the the world didn't end. Right. So so uh, it it was it was arranged on purpose to pull it out of the constitutional system. And I think the Supreme Court's going to put it back in. The real question I always ask you this, Mark, um, because the way the CFPB is funded is it gets an enormously high percent. Of the federal reserve's revenues and the federal reserve gets its money by providing a service a loan service to the banks and then the banks pay an interest rate to the uh federal trade commission so i guess i answered my question but my the real thing is the ftc i mean excuse me the federal reserve provides a uh, service to the banks and the banks pay them for that in interest that payment for the Federal Reserve, is then siphoned off by the CFPB, who provides no service whatsoever to the banks. It's just a funding mechanism with no, um, it, you know, it's not like a license that's given out or any of that.
0: Well, we'll see what the court says about that, because the oral argument is on October 3rd. But what else do we have uh, in the pipeline uh, for new cases? SEC Josh? v. Jarkesy. Yeah, what's going on in that one? Uh, so um, oh. That was granted on June 30th, I believe, right at the, one of the last things that, that the court that the court did in another case out of the Fifth Circuit.
1: Right, and I think this is another one that – jury trials, Mark. The Fifth Circuit says that Jarcusi, who is another SEC guy, right, the SEC doesn't like jury trials, and the uh, Fifth Circuit said, hey, look, if you're going to take uh, – if, you, if you're going to have um, what is basically a common law tort against them and you're going to take their money, um, you have to have a jury trial. And they were all shocked,
0: shocked by this. So um, and we're we're there's another one we're following pretty closely, right, Mark? We're following this uh, very closely. And, and Janine, you probably have more experience uh, with this than I do. I, I know you did criminal appeals, but they were appeals from jury trials. That's right. Uh, and so <laughs> I'm sure there were a lot of issues that came up uh, in, in, in jury trials uh, on appeal. Uh, and yet people in these administrative proceedings don't they don't get juries.
2: Yeah, even though the Constitution is pretty clear that you should. We, have, I mean, we have another case, not in the Supreme Court, but uh, Lesh, where he was denied a jury trial for misdemeanors, even though the Constitution explicitly provides for jury trials in such situations.
0: Yeah, maybe that one will get up to the Supreme Court next. But but the other issue in Jarknessy, other than the jury trial issue uh, is, well, there's two other issues. But one is that the uh, the Fifth Circuit said that the Protection from removal that the ALJs administrative law judges at the SEC enjoy is unconstitutional, and it said that there's a problem with the statute giving the SEC the ability to pick whether or not to go in front of an ALJ or in front of federal district court. That that's too much discretion without enough direction uh, from Congress on that point. And they said it's a non-delegation problem. So and
1: that would be something. So they took all three questions. I they did. They I they had forgotten all, the they last question. All three
0: questions, and they don't have to reach all three questions because if they Rule for hierarchy you know, on any one of them, then they don't have to reach the other two, and, uh, and so I think that's what will happen. And once again, the uh,
1: the SECALJ judges were improperly appointed in a previous case that we know very well, and and so that was wrongly done. And if the removal is also bad, I mean, there's a lot going on there. So we will be looking at that. Do you know? Do you have the argument date for that?
0: I don't have the argument date for that, but I do know that Loper Bright is the other case that yes. that you know a lot about, John, that, is that, correct. Uh, that the court has already and, agreed to take.
1: And so that's Chevron, Chevron, Chevron. Uh, that's the case of the fishermen who uh, have uh, monitors, at sea monitors put on their boats. And then suddenly, 20 years after the statute said they have to have the monitors on the boat, the administrative state said, oh, and now you have to pay for them, too, because we can do that through regulation. And the D.C. Circuit, this is my pet theory, uh, Judge Srinivasan is trying to get the court to say one thing or another about Chevron that they've been silent on for uh, five or seven years. And so he said, oh, it it's, uh, it's very ambiguous. I see a lot of ambiguity here. I, the only way to hold up, the only way to uphold this regulation is Chevron. There's nothing else. And he cleared the decks for anything else. So there was only Chevron. And otherwise, we wouldn't know what to do. And- <laughs> they took it so i think they they took the bait they took the bait as we say well you gotta throw some fishing metaphors no question so so i think that they're gonna come back
0: i think Um, the supreme court might need a bigger boat though
1: (laughs) so obviously we hope that chevron uh, deference is taken away because we believe that you know you're not um it's not fair to be in a in a lawsuit with somebody who has a, a preference from the court on their view of the law. So, um, we hope it gets struck down. There is one out I've heard, which is that uh, silence shouldn't allow Chevron deference. And the original Chevron actually says that says silence. So they could
0: cut it back, just pull silence out. Be an improvement.
1: It would be an improvement, but, uh, I don't think they took it to do nothing.
0: Oh, that would be surprising. Yeah. That would be surprising. I, yeah, I, I don't think, uh, uh, I don't think these will be still waters. No. Um, We also have uh, one- Any other grants? I I will say this. So United
1: States v. Rahimi has come up, and it's a Second Amendment case, and they haven't been taking too many of these, Um, but this one is out of the Fifth Circuit, and they took it, and I think they might have taken it to reverse it, but some people are very big. We don't do Second Amendment here, but I think this case is being followed closely because Rahimi, I think Janine, he had a domestic- of uh, yeah. violence did he have conviction or just no an accusation? just an accusation yeah so, it was so a, he had a restraining he had a restraining order, but, yeah. order without any jury trial or any um <clears throat> actual adjudication of the merits so the uh, the fifth circuit said you can't do that because and,
2: and it was a statute that was being challenged a federal statute that allowed for uh restraining sorry for a conviction um for owning guns Conf- you have compensation
0: or or Is he challenging confiscation of the weapons or he's challenging the – he was convicted of something?
2: Oh, you know, that's a good question. They were definitely confiscated. I'm not sure if he was also convicted.
1: I don't think so. So I think that the restraint, what they're challenging in this case is just the restraining order prior to conviction because I think Heller was pretty clear that conviction – Wait, not
2: the restraining order. The the –
1: The statute that allows it. The ownership of guns. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So anyway, I think think that they took that one uh, to really – say, you know, everything doesn't go in in the Second Amendment. But I could be wrong about that. So we we don't do The Fifth
2: Circuit had apparently issued a decision saying that the statute was unconstitutional. And then after Bruin uh, Supreme Court case about gun ownership in New York, they withdrew the decision and reheard it and then said the statute was unconstitutional.
1: And so I think that one's been followed closely by a lot of people because this is a big issue. Um, I know out in Colorado it is. So uh I think they'll want to hear about that. And I think, is there anything else we want to say before we go? I,
0: I think we're going to come back after the break and talk about some of the cases that haven't been granted yet. That's the plan. So stay tuned and we'll be back right after this. Welcome back to Administrative Static. Mark Chenoweth here with John Vecchioni and Janine Yunis. and we uh, we have uh, we're going to spend this next segment talking about some of the cases that are pending in front of the Supreme Court right now, but have not been granted cert yet. So it could be that all of these are granted, it could be that none of these are granted. Most likely, some will be granted and others won't. But we'll we'll talk about them. And uh, uh, maybe the first one uh, worth talking about uh, is this. Um, uh, is this Cargill case that NCLA uh, has been uh, working on, and this was our case uh, up through the Fifth Circuit, and this is the the bump stock case. So there are now, uh, I think, at least three or four different bump stock cases. There's one in the Sixth Circuit, there's one in the Tenth Circuit, there's one in the D.C. Circuit, there's one in the Fifth Circuit. Cargill was the first one to get up to the U.S. Supreme Court on the merits, uh, meaning that there's been a trial, there's been a decision about the meaning of the statute here—it's not in a preliminary injunction posture, as some of the previous uh, cases to reach the Supreme Court were—and so Cargill is pending. The Gatus case out of the out of the D.C. Circuit is pending. And John, I got to think—you got a circuit split on the meaning of a statute here. The Solicitor General has—I mean, the, the government lost below; we won the Cargill case in the Fifth Circuit. So you got to think that. One of these cases is going to be granted, and probably Cargill, but it's hard to say. And,
1: and a criminal statute, right? People can be put in jail. I, I don't think that they're comfortable leaving a circuit split where if you have a bump stock in certain states in this country, you can go to federal prison. And then in other states, you can't. I cannot see them just leaving that on the table.
0: Yeah, I, I can't either. And and you know they've been kicking it around long enough that I think this time they're going to have to right. – decide what to do. And
1: unlike Raheem, it's not a Second Amendment case. It's just a matter of, does this device fit within the statutory definition of what a machine gun is? And it doesn't, um, but there was a panic, and the administration, the Trump administration, issued uh, suddenly after years and the thing that gets me about this case all the time is atf would give you a certificate you would buy a bum stock and it's not like you just buy it and then you just report it to atf they give you a certificate saying it's not a machine gun and it's perfectly legal to own and then they, they say no i mean that's incredible yeah never
0: mind right yeah. that was the that was the atf's position uh, so i you know we don't know which case that they're going to take uh, but they'll take one case, but th- this isn't at the long conference. It's going to be sometime in October. I think October 6th is uh, is what it was rescheduled for, and whether it gets rescheduled again, uh, we'll, we'll wait and see. Um, but uh, another case that uh, is, is pending cert in front of the Supreme Court is this Lemelson v. SEC case. This was a cert petition uh, that uh, NCLA filed on behalf of Mr. Lemelson, who uh, they, you know, was accused of Uh, he he took short positions in a bunch of stocks and then he has a newsletter and he was making TV appearances and so forth. And, uh, and he was accused of saying some things about the companies that he was taking a short position in that weren't accurate, but they were mostly accurate, Janine. So, you know, is there a first amendment problem here with, with trying to say that, uh, you know, Mr. Lemelson uh, should be Held criminally liable for things that he said.
2: I would think uh, there would be a First Amendment issue. I mean, the First Amendment, first of all, protects uh, false speech for the most part, with some exceptions. Um, there has to be a very high bar for fraud or something like that. But there's an understanding that uh, you know you're going to really restrict dialogue and chill speech if people are constantly afraid they can be prosecuted for saying things that turn out to be untrue or partially true. So I think the you know this is a very problematic uh, situation
0: yeah I think so and and it's it's set up as a particularly nice vehicle because there was a jury trial here the jury found no fraud right. and so it's clear that he was only right. prosecuted for the false speech with right. no fraud and so if they exactly. ever wanted uh, surprisingly the Supreme Court has not addressed this question before i I thought that was uh, you know just that in, in itself I thought was unusual it seemed like something that might have come up
2: the specific question of the fraud being exonerated for the fraud you mean and yeah
1: then, yeah that's right. that because it, it's not it obviously isn't and the other thing about this is this is like one sentence in many pages where he writes about a lot of things and a lot of companies it could even been a mistake right. and you shouldn't have this type of liability for mistake mm-hmm. and and so i you know i i think they should take a look at it i really do and um we didn't have this case below. We took it on Correct. petition, so it's a little different for some of them. But I, I do think, hope they give it a hard look.
0: Another one that we, uh, that we didn't have below, but uh, sought a cert petition in is, is the the Murphy uh, v. SEC uh, case. And there's actually two people named Murphy, and then our client is Richard Gannott, Uh And the, but they're all up on the same issue in front of, uh, of the Supreme Court. And, and really, the main issue is the way that the SEC. Uh, chooses to slice and dice these penalties, John. Uh, you know where, if uh, you know if you settle the case with the SEC, then they'll say, "Oh, well, you're guilty of you know you have to plead guilty to one offense." But then if you fight them in court, then suddenly your one offense of say being unlicensed or of doing something outside the scope of your license suddenly they'll say, "Oh, well, that's 12 offenses because it was 12 months that you were doing this, or it was 52 offenses because it was 52 weeks that you were doing this." And you know, we had Russ Ryan on talking about this, John, but well, it's a it's a problem.
1: And the thing here, uh, just uh, the thing that really bugs me is so you're in litigation with them and you ask them a question. You say, how many uh, offenses are you alleging and how do you arrive at it? And they say, we don't have to tell you yeah. until liability is determined. And then they determine your liability. So you're now a, a deceiver. Right. In the court and then they say, oh, it's this maximum amount. And the courts just go along with it when everyone else in the country who sues you civilly uh, or they have to, or certainly criminal, you can get an indictment struck if it doesn't tell you this stuff that, that, but this sec can just say, well, you know, we don't know. We're going to, we'll, we'll, we'll find out uh, whether you're liable. Then we'll tell you. That's crazy.
0: Yeah. No. And how do you even assess your, your willingness to proceed with the litigation on the front end? There's so much uncertainty that's built into that. And it really puts the, the uh, enforcement agency in the position of writing the law, in a sense, writing the penalties for the law,
1: and the penalty has to be thought of from the defense as the maximum. What's the absolute maximum we could come up with in our heads that they could say? Because they could say that.
0: Yeah. No, that's absolutely right. Um, so the other, uh, another case that's uh, pending in front of uh, of the uh, of the court is this uh, New York City uh, rent control case, and this is a case where. Uh, ncla actually did file an amicus brief in the uh in the court below down in the down in the second circuit um but we uh, did not file uh at the at the supreme court so uh, what what do you guys think uh, new york city rent control so the the issue in the case is is essentially for years and years and years new york city has said that you can't raise rents so like once somebody's in they're in. And only when you change tenants, can you basically raise your rent to kind of a reasonable market rate. Uh, but uh, during the pandemic, it was uh, the, the vacancies got to be at such a point in New York City, people were leaving the city that it actually tripped the, you know, the, the never before in 50 years reached level of vacancies that w- that was threatening to make the, you know, the rent control ordinance go away. And boy, New York City couldn't have that. So they you know they clamped down and and uh, and, and really kind of doubled down on this rent control leading to this lawsuit and the Second Circuit was okay with rent control uh, disappointingly but will the Supreme Court take this case do you think what's your what's your prediction either one of you so here's
1: here's the thing for me I once did an analysis because I wanted to check whether or not section 8 housing federal subsidies went disproportionately to places that had rent control because you wouldn't build apartments you know because of rent control. And what I found was very few places in the country have rent control. So New York has it. I believe San Francisco has it. And there's very other rent. I'm worried that the Supreme Court will say, this isn't a widespread problem in America because we don't have as much rent control. Those of us from New York can't believe that. Yeah. We're the only ones because I grew up with it. There are people, they always say, oh, I'm paying $142 for rent per month. <laughs> Since I've been here since Truman, you know, and so
0: so that's that's why you're using your uh, old guy accent. I'm using so. my old guy accent
1: exactly, and 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 so uh,
0: back in my day, rents were affordable, right. and they still are for me. Yeah,
1: exactly. But that's more Midwestern. I did so. Oh, sorry. So yeah. at any event, so so the thing is, it was it's absolutely well known, and there's all kinds of fraud that goes on as people are living there. Their granddaughters living yeah. there. They're in Florida, you know. It's it's
2: that's outrageous. I knew a lot of people doing that when I lived in New
1: York. I was going to say
0: you're you probably dealt with with uh, these these yeah. Well priced apartments. Yeah, I was very jealous. I well, never had one. And the other thing is,
1: <laughs> the other thing is is that you sometimes see it on TV shows. No one believes it, but uh, the New Yorkers will read the obits, and as soon as the death notices come out, they'll go <laughs> to get the apartment. So there's all yeah, kinds yeah. of things that go on there. But I <laughs> think that crazy. I think that it would be great if they took it because it would mean that you would take a look at takings. You would take a look at this. Um, but I am worried that they'll just say, you know, it's New York and San Francisco and that's not a countrywide problem.
0: Yeah, you might be right, but the case is Community Housing Improvement Program v. City of New York. The last case that we're going to talk about is another one where NCLA filed uh, the cert petition. It's Felkner v. Nazarian. It's another First Amendment case. And on our client, Mr. Felkner, was kicked out of Rhode Island College, uh, the School of Social Work, because he didn't espouse the sort of progressive viewpoint that the college said, Uh, you had to espouse to go there. So that went up to the Rhode Island Supreme Court and they said, ah, it looks like a First Amendment problem to us. And then they sent it back to the district court and the district court said, okay, well, maybe so, but qualified immunity, there's no way this college could have known that it was violating the First Amendment rights, so there's no liability. Then that went up to the Rhode Island uh, Supreme Court and they said, yep, that's right, qualified immunity, no liability for this horrendous First Amendment violation. And so we're trying to get the U.S. Supreme Court to take a look at that and say, well, wait a minute now, we don't necessarily think there's qualified immunity across the board. I mean, uh, they, they could take it and say, this was well-established. First, like you, Everybody knows this was a First Amendment violation. Not so fast. You don't get qualified immunity here. They could say that. Or they could not take it. Or they could, and this would be ideal, they could take it and say, look, we don't think there should be qualified immunity in these situations where there's plenty of time for the school officials to seek legal counsel and investigate whether or not, they would be violating the first amendment in, in doing what they, what they did. This isn't the the cop on the beat making a split second life or death uh, decision. So uh, that case is Falkner v. Nazarian. We'll see what the court does with all of these cases, and we'll report back John, right? And Janine, on what happens Certainly as they're taken. <laughs>